Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parkins and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the May 23rd, 2018 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio in the last month of our sixth season. On and near this day in history, in 1988, the South African government, under a UN-brokered peace initiative, finally agreed to give up control of Namibia. And on the 21st of March in 1990, Namibia Namibia was granted its uh, independence. On the March 7th through March 21st of 1965, the Selman to Montgomery marches were three protest marches held in 1965 along the 54-mile highway from Selma, Alabama, to the state capital of Montgomery. Then, on March 28, in 1799, New York State passed a law for gradual abolition. After that date, children born to slave mothers 
Enslaved mothers were free but required to work for the mother's master as an extended period as indentured servants into their late 20s. Existing slaves kept their status. All remaining enslaved people were allegedly freed on July 4th, 1827. And finally, on March 28th in 1804, black laws were enacted in the state of Ohio. The Congress of the Buckeye State became the first legislative body in the country to enact black laws intended to restrict the rights of free blacks. Two groups supported the measure, white settlers from Kentucky and Virginia, and a growing group of businessmen who had ties to Southern slavery. All of them despised blacks. The legislation forced blacks and mulattoes to furnish certificates of freedom from a court in the United States before they could settle in Ohio. All black residents had to register with the names of their children by June 1st, 1805. The registration fee was 12 and a half cents per name. It became a punishable offense to employ a black person who could not present a certificate of freedom. Anyone harboring or helping fugitive slaves were fined $1,000, and the informer received half of that fine. On January 25th, 1807, <clears throat> these laws were toughened and other states followed Ohio's lead. The black laws remained in effect until 1849. Tonight promises to be brilliant, historic, and inspiring. Our guest is Christopher Scott, exoneree, president, and founder of the House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to working to exonerate wrongfully convicted prisoners. Christopher Scott was wrongfully convicted of capital murder in 1997 and spent 13 years in prison as an innocent man. Since his release, he has dedicated his life to help exonerate other wrongfully convicted prisoners. We're also ex expecting a couple of calls, one from Dr. Will Boyd, who is the Democratic nominee for the Office of Lieutenant Governor of Alabama, and he will be our guest on June 6th. And finally, we're also expecting a call from the president, president of Decarcerate Louisiana, Brother Muratibu, in direct Action News, we want to continue to remind you that a call for a Juneteenth 2018 mobilization against prison slavery from SPARC this year and supporters of Operation Push are calling on all opponents of mass incarceration and modern day slavery internationally to honor the Juneteenth holiday Tuesday, June 19, 2018 with community organizing and direct action. Another reminder, a nationwide and international prison slave labor work strike is being called for on August 21st through September 9th. Angola prison has already begun. If you know someone inside, tell them what's going on. We'll cover what news articles we can in the allotted time, but today is mainly about this discussion on modern legalized slavery from among these disparate quarters. Our abolitionist in profile is Mumbet, a.k.a. Elizabeth Freeman whose case showed Massachusetts' constitutional, uh, constitution nullified any previous laws supporting slavery and was able to win her freedom and compensation for her enslavement. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad tonight is Corey Williams, who was ordered released from a Louisiana prison Monday after serving more than 20 years for a murder many believe he did not commit. Be sure to follow the information on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio as we talk about the stories and also support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll find the links for today on our Abolitionist Planning page. 
If you've got a question or comment, you can call us at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Whew, what's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing, man? Good to have you back. Hey, I'm doing okay, man. Yes, I have my voice back. <laughs> and I can't tell you um, how I lost it. I, I, it's just something that happened, man. But it's good to be able to speak and be heard without straining myself. Um, I am looking very forward to tonight's program. As you mentioned, um, our first guest, which I'll be calling him at about a quarter after the hour, is Christopher Scott. I first became aware of Mr. Scott when I came across this documentary that someone had shared uh, on social media called True Conviction. And that is a film that was released in April of last year. And it was directed by Jamie Meltzer. And the film is about three exonerated ex-prisoners who rebuilt their lives while running a detective agency in Dallas, Texas, which was created to free innocent people from jail. If you haven't had an opportunity to see the documentary, um, it is available for free. Just just Google True Conviction Film, and you'll find uh, links to it. And so we won't be talking to Mr. Scott about the film or the documentary, but we'll be talking to him about his work uh, that he is doing, running an above-ground railroad to free victims of prison slavery. And we're talking about the wrongfully uh, convicted. So I'm looking forward to that, Max. Yes, indeed, man. And also something I'm looking forward to as well is uh, the ability to share an anonymous message, as you said uh, before we got into the program, uh, from someone here in South Carolina who works in the police department. And we've always said, you can share these things with us anonymously. We just want the, the information out yes. there. You know what I mean? We don't have to put your name on it. Yes. And uh, people are starting to do that. And we got this today courtesy of our brother Henry Henderson, a.k.a. Spirit. Uh, you may remember him. He's one of my mentees. And his sister did the interview recently with Brian Stevenson for CNN. So he's always active as an abolitionist and just as an organizer in this community. And this is courtesy of him. Right, and I've said that since the beginning or the launch of Black Talk Radio Network that it, it's sort of like a WikiLeaks type operation. If you work in the system and you have damaging information and you're afraid to come out with it yourself, you know, send it to me. I definitely will put it out and I'll protect your identity. I mean, you can even submit it anonymously. The content or the information will be what the information is. And so, yeah, that that's great. That's the first time that something like that has been shared with us directly. So uh, shout out to the individual who obtained um, this piece of media and shared it with us. But again, if you if you work in a slave catcher's department, if you work in one of these slave plantations or, or what have you, and you are afraid, you know, and, and I'm not going to say that you're a coward or anything like that, I, I understand the pressure. I can put myself in your shoes. I, we've seen other people come forward 
uh, like Detective Joe Glass in Baltimore and what they did to him and how they targeted him. It was another officer in, at uh, NYPD who re- made the recording of of his commander telling them to go out there and target young black men ages between 16 and 21, and they tried to get him killed. So I understand the peril that you will face, and we will protect your identity. I'll go to jail before I, um, you know, reveal such uh, sources. Well, this particular one is more of an, an experienced observation of the facts as that as they see it in their police station every day. Uh, just calling it as it is, and uh, I, I wouldn't call it a bombshell. But it really is powerful whenever you hear the people who are right there telling you that, you know, I'm a part of this. I get paid every week by this uh, system and I'm watching it every day. And this is what I see. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And there was something else that I thought we might want to talk about at some point here on air. Um, and that would be a conversation that you had earlier. And it's been an ongoing conversation. I, I don't know if you want to, but I'm asking. And that's about uh, the statements being made that it is necessary for prisoners to lead the abolitionist movement yeah, or this it, movement in general. If, if we want, well, this is what I say to say to that and I said to that person. Me and you, Max, we both came into the knowledge of the 13th Amendment's exception clause and the fact that the United States uh, never uh, really abolished slavery. They just transformed it like Frederick Douglass uh, warned us when he talked about a snake shedding his skin is still the same old snake and and I came into that knowledge I would say through divine guidance or what have you for whatever reason I was like let me read this 13th amendment so I, I immediately identified the exception clause and what it really means um, and so then I took the initiative of looking for individuals who would be in, who had this same knowledge and understanding of what we're truly dealing with, and if they would work with me to create a weekly program, which now has been on the air for what going on seven years. Yes, as a matter of fact, June thirteenth will be our anniversary. We'll, we'll be uh, going into our seventh season now, and uh, that's that's longevity for a conversation like this. And it needs to be had. To the best of my knowledge, still to this day, we're the only uh, program that focuses solely on one particular topic. But there's a reason for that. It's necessary. This is the most important thing. You're talking about taking down white supremacy. You're talking about fighting against racism. You're talking about fighting inequality. You cannot do any of that successfully as long as slavery is legal. To even think that you can is lunacy. It's, it's like insanity. How can you claim you're going to get some freedom while three houses down from you, somebody just got snatched up and put into a prison for profit? <laughs> it just don't make no sense, you know? You, you know Max. And now with the idea of reparations out, a lot of people talking about reparations and the U.N. talking about, you know, the United States owe reparations, we come down, come down to a discrepancy of dates. And that, what we're saying is, it ain't stopped. So how are you going to get reparations for something that is still going on? Right. And other people are just adding dates in. Right, right. Long before there was a documentary by Ava DuVernay, uh, sponsored by Netflix, called The 13th, New Abolitionist Radio, had been on air 
for years prior to that. And so my point was, is that I didn't need anybody to lead me into doing that. I took the initiative. I saw something that was wrong and I stepped up. That's what leaders do. But I don't like taking on titles such as leaders and what have you, as I also wrote about that, Max. You know, I've been in the military. I've been in leadership positions. Even prior to the military, I was in leadership positions. Some I'm proud of, some I'm not so proud of, you know, uh, uh, because I was engaged in things before I came into uh, consciousness, as many people find themselves doing things that they otherwise wouldn't do if circumstances didn't push them. Uh, to do those things, but leaders bark orders. I'm not on here to bark any orders to anyone. I don't expect anything, anybody to follow anything that I say. I make requests of the people who tune in to our program or follow us on social media. If those people honor those requests, that's great. It enables me and you to continue the work that we do through this platform. If they don't honor the request, Hey, I'm not mad at them. I'm not going to hold anything against them. So in that respect, I am not a leader. I don't believe in titles. Um, you know, we got talk about leaderless movements, but I'm just doing what I feel like I was called to do in my area of expertise. Yes, I, I understand, Scotty. And I, I feel like that as well. I, I'm, I believe that we need to lead our damn selves. Like, we really need to do that. You need to make up your own mind. You need to be sure about the foundations that you stand on. You just can't mimic and copy or parrot what you heard. We don't care about what you think. We don't care about what you feel. What we care about is what you know. And here, we're providing information every week now for going on seven years about uh, with knowledge that you can say, look, I know this because I went and researched it, and these brothers pointed it out to me, or these sisters pointed it out to me, or whoever we have on this program. But it's about uh, making you aware of the circumstances. And, Scotty, I, I could go on and on forever on this. Right. You know that, brother. Well, Max, but I we, think the, we are yes. joined by our guest, Mr. Christopher Scott. If you would, uh, please intro him, and then we'll bring him into the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, uh, Brother Christopher Scott. Um, we're glad to have you here today. Uh, let me just pull up your um, information here so I can read it out loud. All right. Tonight uh, we have with us uh, Brother Christopher Scott, and he is, Scotty surprised me with this. He is the president of Founder of the House of and founder of the House of Renewed Hope. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to working to exonerate wrongfully convicted prisoners. And as everyone knows here on New Abolitionist Radio, every week we highlight one of those stories and always are asking for more and more help. And this is a brother that has done it and experienced it himself because Christopher Scott was wrongfully convicted of capital murder in 1997. He spent 13 years as an innocent man behind bars. And uh, since his release, he's dedicated his life to trying to change those circumstances for others so they can get exonerated as well. And Lord knows there are so many innocent people behind bars today who have been there for ages. Uh, even the jails are the same thing. People in jails never get a freaking trial for six and eight. And I believe there was one guy we read recently was in there for 12 years. Anyway, 
Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, brother Christopher Scott. Fine. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yes. You're an inspiration, brother. <laughs> With, <laughs> that's a big title, but I appreciate it, man. It's just, you know, God, you know, something God instilled in me while I was in prison to try to get up and help those that can't help themselves. And that's what I'm about. That's my passion. And that's what I do. I think we can relate here on New Abolitionist Radio, brother. <clears throat> and sometimes the price is high. Uh, how many people do you have now uh, working with you? And have you uh, gotten anyone exonerated yet? And if so, how many? Is uh, I have a group of people of nine. And just a couple of years ago, we got a guy out after doing 41 years, man. 41 years? Yes, Who is that? 41 years. His name was Isaiah Hill. Isaiah Hill. I'll have to pull that story up so we can share it with our listeners. God bless you for that. Um, indeed, man. That's what it's all about right there. 41 years. Um, let me ask you a question also uh, as regard to your history. You spent 13 years behind bars and you were exonerated. Um, I know often when people are exonerated, the state fights against any kind of compensation. Were you right. awarded anything in the end? Yeah, you know, uh, Texas, we're in Dallas County, Texas, we had a richest compensation law. And while we have the richest compensation law, because once we got out, we just didn't sit down. You know, we went to the state capital in Austin, Texas, and we fought for what we felt like we well deserved of falsely imprisoned men should be compensated. Uh, anybody that was falsely imprisoned for a day, a minute, a second, or an hour should be compensated for that time. Now, when they started it out, it was 25000 But we were saying, that's not enough. For per year, right? Man. Yeah, per year. And then we went back down there, and we got it brought up to 50000 And then some of us said, that's still not enough. So we got it up to 80000 per year now. But we all know one thing about it. We cannot put a price on a human's life. And that's my motto. But... You know, for imprisoning a person that wasn't, you know, guilty, he deserves compensation, and we should have got millions of dollars. But, you yes. know, we settled with the state, and I think we're good at what we have because that's not the only thing that was on our mind about compensation. We were thinking right. about prison reform, how we can help other individuals that's in prison that we left behind. So it's not about us anymore. It's about the people that we left behind now. I asked that question because on a number of our uh, uh, our segments where we do our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and people have been uh, exonerated, they seem to be all fighting for some kind of conversation. And at least one brother we know of, I believe he was one of the angles or three, they let him out uh, just long enough with cancer for him to die broke. Like right. He spent all his life in prison and then he got out and died broke with nothing and nowhere to go. And it was a damn shame. So, you know, if you manage to, to win something, God bless you, brother. And that you're putting it back into this effort, God bless you again. You know, Scotty, any, any yeah. Day? Well, guys, I, I understand what you mean when you say compensation, but in the context of what we're dealing with, and I want to ask Mr. Scott if he's had an opportunity to examine the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and if he is aware of the uh, slavery, the exception clause in that uh, amendment for involuntary servitude and um, slavery, because that's what it, what it says. But on the subject of compensation, I call that reparations. That's something right. that victims of 
pre-1865 slavery never got. Okay, they did not receive their reparations. And just this year, the U, a UN panel just came out and said that, you know, the United States owes reparations, not just for slavery, but continued oppression and racial terrorism and what have you. But I, I view I view any exonerees as yourself as being free from prison slavery. And you are owed reparations. I mean, when we think about it especially people who have spent 30, 40 years, most of their their youth, you know, taken from them. These people, right. have they, they don't have a Social Security uh, a pension waiting for them. They don't have a 401K to support them in their elderly years. Many of them pass, you know, the uh, uh, productive stages of their lives. So I think that, you know, this is something that needs to be adopted nationally and shout a shout out to you and those who worked and fought for that reparation program for wrongfully convicted uh prisoners but you know to my question are you know do you view this the way that we view this as a continuation of slavery per the 13th amendment oh no doubt about it because you know i always tell them slavery is not dead it's just hid well and it's being hid well in our prison systems. Because when you go to any one of our prison systems, they're hid behind woods, behind bushes, kind of like out there with, like, you know, slave owners or slave masters' homes with, you know, or, you know, in those fields. And every day we got to get up at a certain time, like slaves did, got to go to the field. We had to pick cotton. We had to pick fruit. We had to pick vegetables. We had to plant the same things that we ate. So, yeah, it's just modernized day slavery, and that's just what it is. It's no easy way or no common way to put it. Prison is slavery, you know, and, and there's something that a lot of people fail to realize that it's modern-day slavery, and we should get paid for going to the fields. I don't care what. For some reason, I lost my audio. Okay, Max, are yeah, you I still there? Yeah, I did too there? for a moment. I'm okay, back. yeah, um, that was his phone. It, it actually dropped off. So let me call him back and get Mr. Scott okay. back on the line. You know, technical issues do come up. We are dealing with technology and things happen. Uh, it's not perfect. So let's get him back on the line. Yeah, and there's a storm going around here in the south particular too. So things happen. Yeah, I got a notice on my phone about that as as well. So we'll get him back on the line. Uh, Mr. Scott, we have you back. Uh, let me make sure that uh, I unmute you. Give me just a second. You were telling us before we lost you, Mr. Scott, about yes, how it is modern-day slavery. And you were describing the activities, and you were saying that right. regardless of what you do, and then that's when we lost you. Right, and I was saying, like, you know, even though I spent these years in prison, I don't get a Social Security. I don't get a retirement plan from prison. You know, it's just like being kicked out of prison without no place to go because at the end of the day, when you make parole, 
they give you, you get a parole officer and you get all kinds of funds from the state, meaning you can get a job, maybe get help with a job or housing. But being an exoneree, you just get kicked out of prison. And we like, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense because we've done all this time, you know, for the state and we put in all of this work for the state. But at the end of the day, when we get exonerated, we just get kicked out of prison without nothing. And I don't think that's right. And that's why we say that is modern day slavery. You getting worked hard and not getting paid the reprimand that you deserve. That's why it was so evident that we we didn't only fight for compensation. We fought for we got a, a the double blind standard changed. You know, it's certain laws that we got changed. We got the show up law changed. As soon as I the law was changed where a cannot walk somebody up to you and say, this is the guy that did whatever to you. This what we call a show up. So when I got out, they killed it. This no longer exists. And another thing we got changed with the double blind standard, meaning because it always happened. The arresting cop usually couldn't arrest you, interrogate you, and be in there, you know, when they do the physical lineups. Now they can't do that. Only thing they can do is arrest you of command because I've seen it time and time again where the same officers in the room like with the guy that works with me Johnny Lindsay may rest in peace he died about two months ago they had a six pack of photo lineup and the crazy part about it was the guy that was doing the raping was shirtless so they put five guys in the lineup with a shirt on and put Johnny Lindsay without a shirt on wow. and that's how he was picked out but look in open court, right after she picked him out of that lineup, she couldn't pick him out in open court, and she chose the wrong person. She went and picked somebody totally different from Johnny Lindsay. Prosecutor say, ma'am, you picked the wrong person. You need to go out there and pick the right person. And she went and picked Johnny Lindsay. So those are the things that we don't have to worry about no more because we took it up on ourselves. Like, we don't need that happening to no more people. Not people of color, of anybody, but majority of the people that's in prison are men of color. Right, right. I, I would, uh, before I toss it back to uh, Max, I and Max agrees with me, and, and this seems to be a consensus in the new abolitionist movement, um, is that, okay, I really am not into abolishing prisons. I am into reforming prisons. I've had right. family members who were murdered, and I know if that person had not been arrested and convicted for murdering my uncle, that there was going to be some street justice done, and then I could, along with some of my other cousins, ended up in prison slavery myself. So I'm not right. really down with the argument of prison, of abolishing prisons, but I'm about abolishing prison slavery. And right. so to me... If you are going to be made to work to go out there and pick cotton, go out there and pick fruit, answer calls in a call center for whatever Fortune 500 company, if you're going to be like pick my little in Angola, yeah, like my little brother, forced to work on a turkey farm processing uh, poultry, you know, there is just there's virtually no industry that isn't utilizing 
prison slave labor. So I feel like there needs to be a law passed. What if they if they guilty of murder? I still don't think that slavery is appropriate punishment for anyone. And I think if no, you if, if you work that you should be paid because many of these people still have families on the outside. They may have children. They may have a spouse. They may have an elderly parent that they were helping to support before they went went in. And, And we know how families are struggling out there. So if you're going to work, I feel like you should in the very least be paid the federal minimum wage. Then it's not slavery. What are your thoughts on that, sir? I mean, I, I I love that idea. I feel the same way. If you got to go to work like everybody else, you should get paid to work. No if and buts about it. They blow a horn in the morning and mean to get up and go to work. So at the end of the day, we should be able to turn our time cards in and get paid. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, four hour, it's a four hour job to work in the field. So pay us for that four hours and let us get paid. See, they thought they was doing something slick. Certain people in prison got a chance to work. But look, they making like 25 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour at the glass house on the unit that I was on, which is Cofield unit. These people making 50 cents and 75 cents an hour. Now that slavery itself working me like a dog and just paying me 75 cents an hour. You know, I don't know what job pays that less amount of money. But I do agree with you. If I go out there and work hard for you, you should be able to pay me. And you're right. We should go to our legislation and have a bill drawn up to, you know, represent that bill. Now, I take that up under myself. If I can get a policymaker to make that and make it a policy, I would take it to my state capitol and fight hard for men and women that works in the field get paid to work in the field. Right. And, 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 and then they also, just like a regular worker on the outside, will be paying taxes, will be contributing right. to their Social Security fund when they get out, and then also be able to save up some money so that they can mm-hmm. restart their lives when they get out. Because when they come out, you know, they just have so much already stacked up against them and, 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 and many aren't able to successfully uh, restart their lives. Right. And, you know, most of the time when they get out, they don't have nowhere to go. But making that money in prison, like you say, they can save money. They can send money home. You know, they don't have to worry about, you know, if they're going to be able to buy themselves hygiene or worrying about how they're going to take care of themselves while they was in prison. Because like me, when I went to prison, all my family members left. So I had to fend for myself. Now, if I was in that glass factory making 75 cents an hour, I'd have been okay. I wouldn't have been okay with it, but that would have been something that could help me because a lot of times, a lot of people in prison don't have outside help out there to try to support them. So we got to do whatever means necessary in prison to survive. And, you know, that means anything, you know, anything and everything goes in prison if you're trying to, you know, survive it. Right. right. I, I understand that. And, um, you know, I do want to, before I toss it back to you, Max, um, I was watching uh, Jimmy Dore, who is a popular progressive uh, comedian, but he does political analysis on YouTube. And they were pointing out 
uh, Louisiana's new bill, and and I think they were paying the the, the prisoners thirteen cents an hour and like that. So right. they was like saying, you know, this is slavery. This is technically not <laughs> slavery, but it is slavery. Uh, you right. know, but listen, a lot of people don't know, and I actually, uh, you know, just uh, re-educated myself last week and found all a person got to do is Google. Um, uh, 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 I hate using the term slaves, but slaves being paid. There were right. plantation owners who paid some of their victims of slavery a slave wage. And that's how some of them was able to save up their money and buy their freedom. A lot of people don't know that. So just because you're getting uh, uh, paid, uh, like, for example, the firefighters in prison out there in California fighting them wildfires, a dollar a day, that doesn't mean it's not slavery. That's just a slave wage. Right. Right. Max? Sure enough, yeah. Yeah, anytime you got to go out there and risk your life and put your life on the line, and you're not getting paid but a dollar an hour, or maybe two dollars an hour, then it's modern day slavery. No way to look at it. And you ask yourself, who would work for a dollar out here right now? Nobody. Nobody. You can sit on the street corner and beg for a dollar if that being the case because you have all kind of panhandlers make more money than that. So at the end of the day, it's no way a person should get paid a dollar risking their life just because they feel like that our race doesn't matter too much because nine times out of ten, but probably the majority of the guys that was there was African-American men. So that's why they felt like they could do it. Now, I would say this. I wouldn't see them sending a white guy out there paying him a dollar an hour to go fight a forest fire. I just don't see it because, you know, it we got to look at it for what it is. Our criminal court system is flawed and they are racially biased towards African-American men. So there's no way they're going to put their people in harm's way when they know they can pretty much send us out there and use us like guinea pigs. Max. Yes, sir. And and you guys are both right on point. Um, In Louisiana, just recently, legislation was approved to allow prisoners to work on state projects at four cents an hour. But as you mentioned just a, a couple of moments ago, it's a matter of survival. Will you take a four cents an hour job? Yeah, you'll take it if that's all you got. Because you got to buy a toothpaste, you got to get them shoes that they're only sold in the prisons, you got to get the potato chips that's only sold in the prisons, you got to have underwear, you got to have all these things that nobody's providing for you. And in order to do that, that four cents an hour, even if you only end up with two, is more than nothing. So people do that. And right. with this upcoming prison slave labor work strike, uh, the prisoners are asking that people stop putting money on the books, that they stop making the phone calls that cost an arm and a leg, that they choke this economy by refusing to contribute uh, to it continuing, by not you know supporting it. You know, when I had to visit my son, who was in prison for 14 years, uh, they told me I had to do it through video conferencing. I could no longer visit him in purpose. Now, why would I have to visit him through video conferencing? Because it was $15 for 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> They're going to sell me money. my son's image for $15 for 10, Im- 10 minutes and say, you can do it as, long, as often as you want. Of course, as long as you're making $15 for 10 minutes. So 
there were some systems in play. And I want to ask you specifically about your uh, case uh, before I go into the systems. Were you subject to prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct as part of the reason that you had been arrested unjustly and uh, were innocent? Oh, no doubt about it. Prosecutorial misconduct, I think majority of people that goes to court has that. But the court system allowed to happen. And with the cops, they did such a terrible job of that when, you know, trying to get find me guilty. The whole thing was about getting a conviction because at the end of the day, it's people that came to the police station and told these individuals who actually committed the crime. They did not go and look for these individuals, not one time at all, because you know why? Cops have tunnel vision. Once they got the, you know, they eyes set on you, that's what happens. You go to jail, you go to trial, you go to prison, where you get found guilty, you go to prison. And I knew exactly what was going to happen to me. I knew I was going to get found guilty, because you know why? I had a white judge, I had a white attorney, it was a white prosecutor, the second in the chair was white, and all 12 jury members was white. And I asked myself, how could a man of color have a fair trial when a deck is stacked against you that high? That being said, that's not the only thing. I had three police officers testify in my behalf saying I couldn't have not been a killer. They still found me guilty. And men in blue got on the stand and testified in my behalf and said, it's nothing linking this man to the crime. If you ask me if he did it or had anything to do with it, I have to say no. Wow. And they still gave me a capital life sentence. And by the grace of God, this is how my life pretty much changed. The guy that actually committed this crime confessed to my brother, not even knowing this guy was my brother. Wow. Thank you my for telling brother, us that. Go ahead. My brother worked in in a barbershop in prison. Alonzo Hardy walked into the barbershop talking about this case, and that's where all this stuff came from. And my case was a non-DNA case. So somebody had to come forward and confess to this crime, and he did it. He did it in 2002. They don't let me out until 2009. I do seven more extra years. Wow. That kind of reminds me of a case of a... A young brother, uh, his name escapes me. There are just so many victims. Max, you know I covered this case for a long time before he got out. He was like 14 years old, mentally challenged. And then you had uh, the hitman, Vincent, I can't remember his last name, who was a professional hitman who came forward and said, you know, this young boy is doing my time. He didn't commit this crime. And the prosecutor um, um, at the time in Detroit uh, fought to suppress that that uh, information, fought to suppress him, you know, his confession to this crime. And he was willing to come to court and everything. So that's what that wow. reminds me of. Again, we don't. And it reminds me of Ricky Kidd, too. He, yeah. He just had the same thing happen to him. He had to go to court and then he got pushed back so he's got to go through the whole scenario for appeals all over again for like another five years and he's an innocent man and everybody knows he's innocent. Well Christopher I want to ask you 
about what inspired you specifically to start a detective agency and did you have um any inkling that you would find yourself you know um in the work that you're doing now what inspired what what inspired you and and what any kind of training did you get in order to you know uh run a detective agency prison was my training because at the end of the day i was like i was housed with five thousand other men five thousand different personalities five thousand different stories i heard day in and day out about men saying they was guilty and about men saying they were not guilty. But so when I, every day I struggled, I tossed and turned every night in my bed and every time the first thing in the morning, I woke up and I looked in that mirror and I said, man, Dallas, Texas screwed over me. Dallas County screwed over me. What can I do? And what really motivated me, soon as I would look at myself in that mirror and walk outside of my bars, I seen other men matching my same description, saying the same thing. I'm innocent in here for a crime I didn't commit. And I got tired of hearing it. So I got a group of brothers together and I say, look, what can we do to try to help this college? Because two men of us are saying this. They, I tell them, I say, look, first thing foremost, the first one of us that get out, we got to go down and Austin and lobby and put laws and bills in place. Because if it's written in law, they cannot dispute it. If it's written the way we want it, they cannot dispute the law that's written. Now, if it's not written in law, then it can be disputed. They were like, okay, okay, yeah, we can see what's going on. And I happened to be the first guy that got out. And I told myself, out of that training I got in prison, because you can break guys' stories down in prison quick. You know, you talk to this guy, this guy, this guy. This guy's story may change throughout the 13 or 14 years you did with it. But these two guys' stories always stayed the same. And you remember that kind of stuff. And you take that out to the outside world with you, and you just implement it from your book smarts, your street smarts, your prison smarts, and you roll it all up together, and you know what you got? They have created a man that they really probably can't even handle now. Because now we've educated ourselves on every level that we could possibly can educate ourselves on. And that's what I did. So once I got out, it was a no-brainer. I was like, it's just too many other men that looks like me in prison. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own detective agency. And I'm going to have to try to work and get these guys out of prison. The best part of that, the same people that exonerated are the same that exonerated me are the same people that works with me now. So my top attorney, Michelle Moore, she done had 14 exonerations. So why wouldn't I want her working with me? Yes. So if that helped me got exonerated, they work with me right now in my organization. And we do be making changes happen. Well, you are like a modern day uh, Harriet Tubman. Uh, you know what I mean? Like a modern day William Still. Because you're literally getting people freed from enslavement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, they, they, you know, I've been compared, to, you know, to Harriet Tubman before, but I'm like, I just want to be considered me, my own person. You know, a lot but, of times people can't handle what I've been through because to be falsely imprisoned, 
only person know their feeling is the people that didn't happen to. And when you, you know, don't let it get you angry, don't let it get you bitter, you just want that to feed to that anger and bitter, but you don't want to do it physically. You want to be able to voice yourself verbally, emotionally, spiritually, and just give them what they're looking for. And as now, where I'm at right now in my life, my organization is one of the top organizations in the state of Texas of helping men and women get out of prison. My organization is respected. And a lot of people said, I can't believe you come this far in this short of time. I can't believe you're, you're working with the system. Man, I'm like, it's not about working with the system. It's about helping the system be better towards our people. That's the system that I'm trying to change. I want African-American men to go to trial and feel like they got a fair chance of getting out like any other race would do. Mm-hmm. That's what I want, and, that's, and, and, you know, that's my passion to do that, and I've been doing that so far. Uh, I, Mr. I have a question. Go ahead, Scotty. Well, I just wanted to tell our listening audience that you can visit his organizational uh, website for House of Renewed Hope at houseofrenewedhope.org. Again, that is houseofrenewedhope.org. And Mr. Scott, is this a nonprofit? Do you take donations? How can people assist your organization in its work? You know, donation is always good because we have cases that we've tried that DNA, you know, one DNA case we just did cost us $7,000. One polygraph test we just did cost us $2,500. That was like $9,000 we spent on a DNA in, in polygraph test. So people can donate, people can even volunteer to help with House of Renewed Hope because it's one thing that an organization cannot have enough of people that know how to research because research is the key to help so many innocent men and women get free. If cops or prosecutors or judges or lawyers do their jobs thoroughly, it wouldn't be so many wrongful men in prison or women in prison right now. So it's about a structure that you have to have. And I, and I take on interns. I take on volunteers. Because the more the merrier, the more people that work with you or the more people you can try to assist. I wanted to ask you uh, about prosecutors, district attorneys, and I want to ask you about that because we pride ourselves on first providing a nice wrapped up bow around the path from slavery pre-1865 to what we're dealing with today. We show that uh, connection clearly from slavery to convict leasing to uh, peonage and chain gangs and then to body warehousing in the 80s with the Clinton crime bill and then finally back to uh, convict leasing where prisoners are now being leased out to global corporations to make everything, (laughs) everything. So we show that connection to that system. The other thing we pride ourselves on is paying attention to the system right now. And we're aware that 95% of all state prosecutors are white. 83% of them are, these are statistical uh, actualities, 83% Mm -hmm. of them are white men. How can you expect anybody in this country that is not white to have a fair uh, uh, trial or to be treated fairly under such racial uh, 
overbalanced <clears throat> uh, situations. And then to add more to that, once you get to these biased pro- uh, prosecutors, because you know if you got 95% white people, some of them right. are going to be racist. All right? right. So when mm-hmm. you get to these biased prosecutors, then you're forced to be subject to a constitutional violation of your Sixth Amendment rights. You're not even given a trial. 95% of all cases end in a plea bargain. They'll force you to make a plea bargain. They'll threaten you with everything, including the devil coming down and dragging you to hell <laughs> to get you to make this plea bargain. And, usually, and oftentimes, it's a plea bargain where you're saying, I'm guilty of something you never did just right. to get out after three or five years in jail. You know what I mean? Just right. to get out and see your family. So a lot of people believe that the prosecutors are the key to the change that is necessary. And some of these prosecutors, like Larry Krasner out in Philadelphia and Genevieve Joan out in California, are leading the way in this effort. Uh, how do you feel about the prosecutorial system, given that information? I don't know if you knew it already or not, but how do you feel about that system and uh, any ways that you feel we could help that change occur? Yeah, you know, by having open dialogues like we're having right now, getting out there and make sure we vote because a majority of the prosecutors and things that we have, they're elected officials. So if we can get up and go vote, that's where the changes is going to come made. Now, in, in Dallas County in 2006, Texas, Dallas County, elected the first African-American district attorney in the state of Texas history. You know how big state of Texas is? And what year in that? Was that? 2006, Craig Watkins was the first African-American district attorney in the state of Texas history. He started the first criminal interrogative unit. That was a unit that was formed by the DA office to look into wrongful conviction cases. And the first day he was on a job, they tried to make him throw away all the DNA evidence that they had stored. And that's the wrong thing they did because he said that brought about a red flag. How on my first day in the office, y'all telling me to throw away something that could free innocent men and women in prison? I would not do it. So when he looked at it, he said this, there's going to be some changes made in Dallas County. I promise you and I guarantee you that. A month and a half later, 17 white prosecutors was fired. And this is what the district attorney did he told the people and this kind of why he lost his election because a lot of people turned on he started making other like prosecutors black prosecutors and and, and, and black defense attorneys run against these prosecutors and judges that wasn't holding water in a courtroom that they know that was hanging African American men now Dallas County courthouse has flipped. Now, it's like 75%, you know, African-American men and women, there's judges, there's prosecutors, there's public defenders. Now, I'm not saying just because they have my same skin color, all of them is good. I'm not stating that. But when you see the law of average flip that much to where it is now, Craig Watkins did it. He did it because being the first African-American district attorney in the state of Texas history, he knew the struggles that we went through. You know what I mean? He knew the struggle. His great-granddad was hung for capital murder. 
they heard him. So his history allowed him to understand what majority of us was going through. And he stood by us thick and thin because in my case, if you know, the first district attorney we had was Henry Wade. He was a racist white guy. And he stated this, a good prosecutor is only a good prosecutor is not a good prosecutor that can convict the guilty. A good prosecutor is only a good prosecutor that can convict the innocent. Wow. He lived by his word for 37 years. 37 years, I kind of went through that, and everybody thought Henry Wade walked on water. But as soon as a brother came in and made drastic changes, it was a hairy to get him up out of there. They hairied up and put somebody against him to hurry up and get him out of there because he was making changes that nobody has ever seen. He was letting us out at a record pace. That, dude, it's 66 people that's exonerated out of Dallas, Texas. I was incarcerated with at least 45 of them that's exonerated right now. But Craig Rockins made that happen. He made that happen because he wanted something good for his people in the courtroom. He wanted to practice justice and not injustice. Yeah, and they expanded that now across the country. Uh, We've highlighted some of those integrity units across the country, in particular Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Uh, The brother that passed away of cancer just recently was involved in the integrity unit there, and I believe he freed a total of like 22 people uh, that were affected directly by Louis Scarcella. The detective who were who was uh, torturing people and framing mm-hmm. people to get these convictions. Um, so yeah, I, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, uh, we only have like about five more minutes, uh, yes. um, and we again want to thank you, Mr. Scott, and we hope that this isn't the last time we'll have the occasion to talk to you because if you have any cases that you would like to um, get public attention. Just reach out to us. We will be a resource for you and helping to spread the information that you feel needs to be spread. Um, we want to. I want to. Uh, we got time for one more question. Uh, yeah, I was just about to say that. If y'all have any questions or comments, please get those in uh, now before we let Mr. Scott go, so we can uh, get to the rest of our segments. But we have Brother Davis on the line. Uh, thank you for calling in, Brother Davis. Do you have a question or comment for Mr. Scott? Hey, Brother Scott, congratulations, and thank you for everything that you've done. But have you uh, considered restructuring yourself and building a family and seeking happiness on another level? I can hear you say it again. I said, have you considered restructuring yourself, building a family, and seeking happiness on another level? Well, you know, uh, you was kind of static, and I, I, I don't want to answer the question wrong because I'm trying to hear you, but it's a little static on the line, and, and you've been barely coming through. I, I heard something about family. Yeah, he, he said, and I'm paraphrasing what, what he said. He said, have okay. you found personal fulfillment and happiness by, you know, starting a family? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and my, you know, my kids are grown. My kids are 27 and 28. So, you know, the, the you know I started their family before I went to prison. But it was a struggle for me being in prison, though I left two young men out here for somebody else to take care of because when I went to prison, my kids were five and six years old. And I was the only thing that they really had at that time. 
because I was a great dad. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm loving my life now because my two sons have gave me beautiful grandkids. So now I'm living their lives through my grandkids because they're the age now that my kids was when I went to prison. So this life is great for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that, my brother. And may, may you be fine. Blessings all through your life because you are definitely giving them. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brother Davis. Any other uh, questions yes. before we, we let our brother go this evening? Yes, we, we have another caller. It's an unknown caller with a blocked number. You just unmuted yourself. I see you, Otis. We'll come to you, Otis. But um, the unknown caller, um, if you care to share your name and go ahead with your question or comment, thank you for calling us tonight. The unknown caller, did you have a question you or see? comment? Okay, perhaps they unmuted themselves by mistake. Otis, did you have a question or comment for our guest tonight, Mr. Christopher Scott? Yeah, I just wanted to tell him congratulations. I also wanted to ask him, I lived in Dallas for a while, and uh, I actually had the pleasure of trying to work with Ron Kurt through uh, John Wiley Price. So I wanted to know if John Wiley Price did anything to help you with, with your mission. But while the price, you know, I always, you know, been here for us, you know, since I was kids, I followed John Wiley Price, and he's one of those stronger African American men that has a lot of power and a lot of pull in Dallas, Texas, and he, you know, and John Wiley Price is going to go to bat for his people. That's how he's been since I've known him. That's how he's, that's how he is right now, and he's and he leaving, he's leading a major charge for us. Yeah, so. He's a good friend of mine. You know, I respect him. I love him. And he got out of some trouble. You know, a while back, they tried to, you know, put him in all kinds of trouble. And he bounced right back. And he's the longest-lasting, you know, state councilman we have, you know, here in Dallas County. He's been there for 37 years. So he's doing great things for Dallas. Yes, he is. I know him well. Is he still well, a representative? Uh just, he may not remember me, but my name is Otis Griffin. If you see him again, tell him Griffin says hello, and I'm proud of him because I I can work with him when he's in South Dallas, and I was going working with the uh, the city doing some contracting work, and he's a strong brother. Yes, he is. I sure would tell him, Otis. Thank you. Um, Mr. Scott, as we get ready to close out our segment, we would like to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with some final thoughts. The floor is yours, sir. Final thoughts is this. Always understand our DA office is very important to our county. It's the heartbeat of our county. So you must pick the right district attorney and put him in your county to make great changes. And another thing, if you ever, ever get sentenced to do jury duty, please don't ignore it. Because at the end of the day, just your one vote alone can stop an innocent man or innocent woman from going to prison or worse yet, going to death row. I echo those sentiments. Thank you very much, Brother Christopher Scott, and thank you for sharing your thoughts here with us on New Abolitionist Radio. As Scotty said, consider us a resource. Uh, maybe you even might want to consider uh, talking with Scotty off-air about possibly starting your own radio program where you can deliver this news yourself. 
uh, and create your own formats. And he's uh, he does that on occasion and has classrooms set up to show people how it's done. So again, thank you for being here, brother. And uh, do us a favor, if you will, remember that there's an abolitionist movement alive and well today. And we don't look at this as something that can be reformed, but as something that needs to be abolished. And it is allowed through the 13th Amendment, as you said earlier. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Be blessed, Mr. Scott. Peace. What we're going to do then is uh, take a quick station identification break. And when we come back from the, on the other side, I want to listen to this, uh, these MP3s that were sent in from an employee of a South Carolina police department. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and our guest who just left, Brother Christopher Scott. We'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Make sure you get a membership with community.blacktalkradionetwork and help us to continue what we're doing here. Uh, We need all the help that we can get, and we're trying to build an institution, so become a part of something special you know uh, Max, Scotty, this, yes Scotty yes I, I just want want again to just thank Mr. Scott for what he is doing and you know the circumstances were unfortunate that put him on this path to his current career as an above ground uh, conductor on the Freedom Highway um, but you know if not if not you then who and he's an example of that. He could have easily just fought to get the money, you know, for reparations for himself and got that money and then just retired a quiet life and just spent time enjoying his grandkids. But his conscience wouldn't let him do that. And he is engaged in the abolitionist work that he is engaged in. And his story is very inspiring to me personally, because as he mentioned, you know, these brothers and sisters are under psychological duress 24-7, and everybody can't handle it. And it has broken a many of human beings. And so that's just a testament to his strength and others like him that he did not allow it to break him. You're absolutely right, Scotty. And I got to say, sometimes I'm, I feel a little desensitized because here on New Abolitionist Radio, we have uh, more than one occasions have these historical moments where, you know, here we have a modern day William Still. You know what I mean? Like, it just happens so often here that uh, I guess I can't get this, uh, desensitized to it. Amazing things, man. And an amazing brother. All right, Scotty. So this uh, audio that we're going to play tonight, uh, was sent to me by my brother Henry Henderson. Henry, also known as Spirit, has been an organizer in the South Carolina community for at least the past 15 years. I worked with him for about 12 of those years uh, side by side. And uh, as you know, his sister recently did the interview with um, the brother out there at the uh, New Museum, Brian Stevenson, uh, for CNN. And now he's taken upon himself to do some conversations with people who are involved in the police departments and the criminal justice system and uh, this is the first of those that he did. You won't hear him talking. You'll only hear the person we're keeping anonymous who is an employee currently in a South Carolina police department expressing their thoughts but uh, in between the spaces you'll know that 
Henry asked them a question. So there you go, Scotty. As conviction rates, it's, it's the way the laws are written. The, the way the laws are written right now is that they are basically allowed to murder for almost anything. So it's hard to get a conviction um, unless <laughs> unless they're stabbing someone in the middle of the night and premeditated and stuff like that. But in, in the line of duty, their their scope of of allowance is so large that they can get away literally with murder every time. It's the way the laws are written for specifically cops. So that they're, it, it follows in line with their line of duty. It's systemic. It's 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 like huh, it's so frustrating because I see it and I mean I'm not on the street so I can't stop it. I get the arrests afterwards. I have to file the warrants, but the warrants and the arrests are always predominantly black people. And it just, it kills me. I'm like, why aren't there white people being arrested for the same crimes? It doesn't make sense. Yes, of course it's racist. The arrest ratio every night is racist. I always find blacks being um, arrested way higher than whites. And we have a smaller black population in Charleston. Yes, it's racist. Yes. It is, because we have more whites on the force, and there, more whites are, are in predominantly black areas more than they are in the white areas. That's how it is. I don't really have, um, like I see petty shit all the time. You know, I, I can't, I don't really have a stat. I don't have a statistical response to that, to be honest with you, but, like, I see white crime go up when there are white festivals, and that's the only time. But on a normal night, it's normally blacks getting picked up for marijuana or open container or public disorderly, things like that. Um, but when it's a white festival, like Sidhu or... You know those white ass folk. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Then you see the white crime go up. That's that's pretty much how it works. Here's another thing that happens a lot. People call in to dispatch with some racist ass bullshit, and they'll say stuff to enhance the call that doesn't exist. So when an officer gets out there. Sometimes he has the misfortune of having a racist caller tell them some shit that doesn't exist. You know, like barbecuing while black. <laughs> Prime example. So, um, you know, that's a factor too. Because when they get out there, they don't know. They have to assess the situation as fast as possible and they have what they have from the caller. Um, that's a, that's another thing that really fucking makes me sick. Racist white people calling in. There it is, Scotty. I believe that's the end.
Yes. Yes, that's uh, the shout out, shout out again to Henry Henderson for making that possible. Uh, <clears throat> she said it herself. She's in Charleston, South Carolina. So we can have that much be out at least. Uh, it's the same place that Walter Scott was murdered. And she said at the very end, she pointed out how it works. You got the black people in the middle who are a small population under siege from the white racist callers who call for any reason, like we've seen many times in the past few weeks. And then you have a racist police force who goes out and answers those calls. Yes, there's many dynamics uh, to this symptom of slavery. And you're right, it has been highlighted recently. You know, I just saw a video on YouTube a couple of days ago of this black real estate developer who had a contract with a homeowner um, and it required him to go out to the home and assess the property and then the racist white neighbor called the police on him and and uh, demanding that the police remove him from the neighborhood and the guy kept his cool he kept his emotions in check he started recording um, he, he um, was was very specific in his language and in interacting with the police. And this is the exception to the rule, but uh, or the exception to what we've been seeing. But the police actually sided with him. It was a white male cop and a black female cop. And the white male cop even threatened to arrest the woman if she called back. Um, you know, and, and saying that, you know, this guy is legitimate and he's out here doing his job and we're not going to have this. You're not going to do this. And if you keep it up, I'm going to take you to jail. But unfor- unfortunately, we don't have that many slave catchers who are acting like community police. They're acting like slave catchers. And, and so, yeah, man. And, you know, <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have the solution to a racist heart. You know, I I just don't have, I wish I did. The only thing I can think of is like, you know, Mr. Scott was saying, it is very important that we vote and that we get the right people in these critical positions at the county level. You know, most of the time we talk about voting, we're talking about voting for president or a congressperson or a senator or, or or what have you, but we're affected, you know, as the old saying goes, politics is local. That local district attorney or prosecutor has a lot of power, okay? So we need more Larry Krasners uh, who laid out his policy vision for that office in Philadelphia, and when those prosecutors dissented and was like they wasn't going to get with the program and they wasn't going to follow his orders, he cleaned house. That's even more mean. than Krasner, Genevieve Jones, who recognizes modern day slavery. Right. And we got to get her elected. She hasn't been elected yet. But um, interestingly, she got an endorsement from because I, I, I follow her on Twitter. She got an endorsement from guess who, Max? Larry Krasner. No. I'm looking at it right now. No, no, Ooh. no, no. That, well, if he endorsed her, that's news to me. She got an endorsement from Kamala Harris. Take what you can get. That's all I got to say. Take what you can get. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, our tweeting at Kamala Harris about the things she did as a prosecutor, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, it might be having some effect on her. 
Well, I would also like to say thank you to the brave young lady who works in this place and was willing to speak up about what she sees every single day in the circumstances in North Charleston in particular. You know, that's my neighborhood, so to speak. I've been working in Charleston for 15 years with the activists there. And uh, it's the place where nine people in my freaking neighborhood were murdered by Dylan Roof. It's the place where Walter Scott was gunned down and shot in the back. And uh, it's the place where Muhaddin Dibaha was the leader for the Black Lives Matter uh, movement there in Charleston, South Carolina. Also an abolitionist who is uh, now deceased, uh, murdered just three months ago. My mentee and my brother. As a matter of fact, uh, speaking about him, there is a $5,000 reward open right now to anybody that has any information that leads to the arrest and indictment of the person who killed him. Uh, You can contact... Detective Brett Mathis at 504-658-5300 or you could send an email in to who killed Moya, M-O-Y-A Moye, M-O-Y-E who killed Moya Moye at gmail.com We want to know who murdered this brother, who was an abolitionist and a freedom fighter and a Black Lives Matter leader, uh, who was ready to run for senator and had such a bright future we want to know. So if you have any information, please tell us. But again, thank that person who spoke out there. I can't say her name, but she definitely right, testified right. about that, what she sees like, every day in North Charleston. That's like some spook who sat by the door type action there, you know, for those that are not aware of that film. Check out that 1970s uh, film, Spook Who Sat By The Door, which was produced and directed by Sam Greenlee. Indeed, indeed. Oh, and one more shout out I want to give out, Scotty Reed, if you don't mind, is a quick shout out to Abby Odun Oyewole, my mentor, and the last poets who just celebrated 50, their 50th anniversary. Uh, that's amazing. 50 years, the last poets made a hell of an impact uh, on the entire world with their poetry. All right, so let's open up the phone lines before we get into our final segments for the evening. There's not a lot of news stories that we can cover today. We provided uh, what we have available, which is more than we can cover here on this program, in our archives. Uh, Please become a member of community.blacktalkradionetwork and uh, check out the archives so you can see the stories that happened recently. Yeah, the the short address is btrcommunity.com. That'll take you there, too. And, um, you know, yeah, we have a 30-day free membership trial. It's a social media platform, and it's $24 a year. And that is part of the way we fund the work that we do. You know, I was expecting a call from uh, Will Boyd, Dr. Will Boyd. And he called last week, he said, but nobody could hear him. And I told him he had to press star star to unmute himself. But he listened to the whole show. He was incredibly inspired. I I wonder if that's him on the unknown caller. It might have been him. Maybe he's got himself muted. I mean, press no, star star and make sure your phone is unmuted if you're if you're there. Yes, uh, well, boy. In any case, he's going yes, to be he our just guest unmuted himself. on June six. Huh? That person just unmuted themselves. Perhaps that's him. Perhaps no, it's not. Uh, this is Jay Skills. I'm just listening in. Oh, oh okay. brother Jay Skills, what's happening, man? How you Jay doing, brother? Skills. It's been a while since we uh, heard you on the program. For those that don't know, Jay Skills was one of my mentors who taught me a lot and almost uh, kind of set me on the path that I'm on today, many years ago. Peace, Brother Scotty. Peace to all the listeners. Like I said, I'm just listening in. Uh, 
didn't really have much to talk about, and I didn't want to just like you know leave you guys hanging, thinking that somebody was listening in or couldn't you know respond. So that's why I just unmuted myself. But if it's okay with you, I'll mute myself again. I would like to ask you a question while you're here. It's some information you provided to me before, and uh, I would like you to share today if you're able or willing to. And that information is regarding the uh, Persia investments or Persian investments. She was breaking it down to me. About what you're talking about is Persian Square. Persian Square, yes, exactly. Because we want to you know, tie up the, the loose ends so everybody's aware of how this system works and who's behind it. And really at the top of the pile is this uh, Persian Square that you was telling me about not too long ago. Right, and basically what it comes down to is the uh, chairman of the company, his quote was very direct and very simple in terms of, you know, the sales of their stocks, right? And, you know, when you when you look into investing in, you know, any type of stocks and bonds or anything else, right, the main thing is you're making an investment. And when this guy can sit back and say, well, the only reason that you would lose money by investing in the prison industrial complex is if people stop committing crimes, Real simple. And and these are the ones who really manage all of the funds that go in and out in the stock exchange. Am I correct? That's part of it in terms of the prison industrial complex. But see, the other thing that you got to take into consideration, right, when it comes to not just stocks but bonds, right? right. They are what's called municipal bonds. Right. Now, the, the municipal bonds cannot be approved without it being a public discussion. However, there's so many people that don't even pay attention to that, where it's like these bonds are being approved. They're they're basically loans from Mm -hmm. every state, city, council, where people are not going to these hearings that may take place at no o'clock at night, but they're not going to them. Therefore, these bonds are being issued as a loan because they know the money is going to come back to them no matter which organization you want to look at. Mm. Now, what you just said is very important. Um, I work with a brother by the name of Kwabana Rasuli, but he focuses on um, the harmful messages that comes out across urban radio, this stuff that they call in uh, rap today. But he said that he was working with this minister in Gary, Indiana, and they was wanting to bring a private prison, and they were pushing it like, oh, this would be great for the community, it'll generate jobs and all that, but the community uh, turned out to that public hearing, and they were able to defeat that initiative, so what you say is very important. Yes, they do um, at times try to hide these hearings from you know, public view, they might make an announcement, one announcement, and that's it. And But it is very important for us to be plugged in into what's going on where we live. And, and I agree with you 100%, Scotty, and what I will say is this. Uh, you know, it's a thing in which, like, you know, there, there's an old saying, right? And I'm not perpetuating the saying, I'm just repeating it. Right. If you want to hide certain things from certain people, in particular people of color, put it in a book, put it in a magazine, put it in a newspaper. Right? Because 
see, all of these things, when it comes to these hearings, they are public notice, right? They have to be made public in order for it to be official. Just like, for instance, you know, when I go to get a permit to carry, there is a public notice announcement that has to come out that says, this man has applied for a permit to carry, right? It gives the opportunity for any opposition. In the same breath, it's a thing where the public notice is put out there, well, we are having a hearing, you know, based on a prison being built, whether it be public or private, or rather, you know, state or private. Yet, then, you know, the reality of it, yes, it does boost the economy, but we're not the ones that's going to be policing these prisons. We're not the ones that are going to be doing anything for these prisons. You know, the... Okay, fine. We're, the we're commodity. talking like Indiana, or we're, we're talking yeah. like Iowa, or we're talking, you know, various other states to where there are desolate areas where, you know, no disrespect to anybody as far as the way they live, but, you know, when, when you are, you know, making twenty or $30,000 a year, now you have the opportunity to make $60,000 a year because a new prison is being built. Yeah, the community is going to, you know, embrace that unless there are people that are paying attention that will oppose it. Right. And I feel, um, you know, again, speaking with my work with Brother Kwabana Rasuli in these urban radio stations or radio stations, period, this is the type of information that we need to come out over those community radio stations. And that's why my organization, you know, is is really behind the building of digital radio stations that are unregulated by the FCC. You don't need a license or anything of the sort. You just need the equipment and the expertise in which we provide those through classes every Saturday. But this is the type of community information that radio stations and, and, and media should be informing the people about. But unfortunately, you know, we don't have that. So that's an area where we need to step up. Yeah, and I asked about the Pershing Square because, you know, we tied a lot of things to the Vanguard Group, which is an investment company. And the Vanguard Group, for example, was used by the sitting Vice President Dick Cheney, where he and Alberto Gonzalez both had money invested in uh, the Vanguard Group, which in turn invested in for-profit private prisons. And they were indicted in uh, Texas because of those the money that they had in the Vanguard Group. Not in the prisons, but in the Vanguard Group. And the sitting vice president at that point, Dick Cheney, had $80 million in. And uh, if it wasn't for a couple of murders in the prisons, nobody would have known about those investments. And as you know, Scotty, and uh, Jay Skill knows over the years, we found that many officials uh, in high positions have had their money invested in private prisons through a third party, uh, like the Vanguard Group. Now, from what I understand, the Vanguard Group is below the Pershing Square. Is that correct? That's definitely correct. It's it's like money laundering almost, you know what I mean? Like you blindly give your money to these people and they invest in these corrupt or immoral or unethical business industries. And as long as you're making money, you don't care. Uh, well, if, if, if I can interject for a moment. Yes. Right. The solution would be for people to, you know, instead of reading the comics or instead of reading, oh, you know, somebody got raped or somebody got beat up or somebody got shot, you know, look at the public notices 
and be aware of the hearings that are taking place to prevent these prisons from being built in the first place, right? Because the main thing is, I, I, I don't care if you're Donald Trump or, you know, Dick Cheney or anybody else, right? An investment is an investment, is the way most people are going to look at it, right? So if I can get, like, for instance, if you said to me, Scotty, right, I need to borrow $1,000 from you for a month, but I'm going to give you $2,000 back at the end of the month. Well, that's an investment for me. You know, the reality of it is, I don't care how you're getting the money back to me. You're getting the money back to me is what we agreed on, right? So when people are investing in these things, half the time they don't even know what they're investing in. Right, right, right. They got brokers that sit back and... Look, I got a solid investment for you. And when people say, oh, you know, we're, we're, I'm going to be investing, you know, half a million dollars or a quarter million dollars or $100,000 of your money in a geo group or into Corecraft or any place else, they don't even know who these companies are, what they right. represent. Right. Yes. You we know, found that out with the University of California, uh, where the students had did these protests about uh, divesting from the prison industries, the University of California, and, found and out that they had like, Columbia. I don't know what they say, $14 billion invested, and only $30 million of that was invested in private prisons. And they divested from it, but it was chump change compared to them. Yeah, so Columbia uh, University um, was also another one of those student-led uh, movements that forced that university uh, to divest. But to to uh, Jay Skills' uh, point about, you know, investing. Now, Max, you know this is something I've taken issue with and, and directly confronted Boyce Watkins, who likes to talk a lot about black wealth and investing, you know, and I asked him several times, are you giving classes on ethical investing? Are you telling people, you know, to make sure that these companies they're investing in aren't utilizing prison slave labor like a Walmarts, like a Targets, like a Microsoft, like, you know, any of the other Fortune 500 companies? Are you telling people that before they invest money in a 401k fund that they check out what these funds are actually going towards. And, and so, yeah, the onus is on us to educate ourselves because I don't expect our enemies to tell us. I agree yeah. with you on that, Scotty. And, and I, I, I would like to kind of like interject something, right? Or interject on, you know, your point. And I'm adding on to your point, not taking away from your point in any form or fashion because I agree with you 100%. And, you know, like... One of your listeners, I'm sorry, one of your uh, one of your guests on the show, you know, was from Texas, and you guys were talking about Texas and everything else. And you know, the reality of it is, I don't think most people even have any idea of the way the state of Texas works when it comes to criminalization and incarceration. But when I say it, I don't think anybody has any idea, you know, it was mentioned, you know, that somebody was hung. You know, when, when they were sentenced to, you know, sentenced to death and everything else. Okay, first and foremost, Texas is the highest state in this country as far as executions are concerned. And the state of Texas, make, I know people as part of my projects that have been incarcerated for 15, 20 years that are on death row. 
They all sit at a prison in Huntsville, Texas. And there is a... <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. There is a monopoly that exists by keeping these people. I mean, let me get, you know, don't get me wrong. Let me just be straightforward with you. Not everybody that's convicted is rightfully convicted. We know that on a regular basis. But they make more money by keeping these people alive than by executing them immediately. You even take the boy that did the shooting on Friday, I think it was. Okay? He's already been charged with capital murder. He'll be sentenced to death row. He's already in Huntsville anyway. Right? But it's probably going to be about 15 years before this kid is executed, and the state is making money off of it. Now, the other thing that if I do, you know, like, if you ever really want to have me on the show and me actually talk about everything, then, you know, one of the things that we can talk about is what happens with death row inmates and the bastardization of the system that takes place as far as the U.K. is concerned. See, my, my, my plight is not just national. My plight is international. We're with you on that, brother. We are definitely with you on that. Okay, so do you know how women from the U.K. take advantage of men that are on death row in the United States? Hmm. If that's a question, no, I'm not aware. That may be a topic for discussion at some time in the future, but I'll keep it real simple right now. Right, depending on what country you're at in the UK that you live in, you come over from the. This is where the term death row groupies come into play at. Right, your death row groupies, these broads will sit back and they will, you know, pen pal this, that, and the other. In particular, like in the state of Texas, first and foremost, there are no contact visits. There's no conjugal visits, no nothing. You get married through a window. You never get to touch your bride, no nothing. There's also no phone system. You don't get to call nobody when you when you're locked up in the state of Texas. Everything is through writing, right? So when a chick comes over after writing back and forth, well, you know when you're locked up. See, because I've been locked up. When you're locked up, the majority of times, <coughs> excuse me, people just you know are happy to get some type of correspondence. So they go back and forth, back and forth, and they're looking for these letters constantly. With that gives them some hope of what to look forward to. So eventually, these bitches come over and they want to talk about oh, getting married and this, this, that, and the other. You never get to consummate your marriage, no nothing. But again, this is a topic we can have later on, or a topic of discussion we can have later on. But see, once these broads marry you and they go back to the UK and you they have legal documentation that you are your well, you are their husband in the UK if your husband or your spouse period is incarcerated there's a welfare program that exists that states that okay if your husband or your wife your your significant or insignificant other that you are legally married to 
could have been making $60,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $80,000 a year, based on their so-called background and their skill set. There's a welfare system that exists that they will still get that while your ass is sitting on death row waiting here to die in America. Wow. That's sick. That's very sick. And I was not aware of that. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. On the top, I got one more thing I want to bring up, and then if you, you know, like I said, if if you ever want to really have somebody on the show that like has been doing this since 1992 and knows the ins and outs, here's the other thing that I will I, I will give to you. That y'all can look this up, y'all can play on it, do whatever you want to do with it, but I know this to be a fact. You, the, the, the other reason why you have so many death row groupies, right, is because I'm on death row. A bitch chooses to marry me, whether she's from this country or from abroad. She chooses to marry me. Legally, she is my wife. Do you know what it says on a death certificate for somebody that is executed? What's that? by homicide, which means legally the bitch can take out a $5 million life insurance policy on me, wait for five, 10 years, whatever, and as soon as I get executed, it's based on the death certificate and what the insurance company is going to fucking pay off on. You know, that was in the back of my mind when you were talking about these groupies and, and the exploitation. I was just waiting for you to say that. Yeah, and I'm thinking yeah, to well, myself, that's the, that's the way it works. Wow! Because a birth—I mean, a birth certificate is a birth certificate. A death certificate has to give some type of explanation as the cause of death, natural causes, you right. know, suicide or homicide or you know, whatever. Right, right, right. But when when a person is executed, they didn't voluntarily kill themselves. They didn't die by natural causes. Right. They were killed. Right. And which that's the, is the homicide. definition of homicide. Right. That's the definition of homicide. You're correct. Okay, so there's so many bitches that sit back and want to marry cats that are on death row. And, okay, yeah, you you know, depending on what state you're in, you might get a little bit of pussy from here and there and everything else. Because let's try, and keep, it, not let's try and keep it family friendly if you can. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, bro. I thought we were uncensored. So you might get a little bit of conjugal visits and, and things like that, you know, during your time that you're incarcerated. But at the end of the day, these individuals have an agenda. It's not like, you know, they're marrying you in the hopes of, you know, you coming home and we're going to build a family or anything else. No, you're a cash cow for them. That's simply the reality of it. And if... Anybody that's listening or anybody that I'm talking to right now directly has any questions, please look up what it says on the death certificate for somebody who has been executed. Mm. Because this is where a lot of people are cashing in and on whatever. And it's not just women, it's men also. Brother Jay Skills, uh, appreciate you calling in tonight. Uh, we'll set up something where you can come in, and we'll give you the time. To I don't even want to talk. talk. I, 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 I don't, the only reason why I even unmuted myself was to let you know that you know it wasn't who you were looking for. I'm, I'm just saying uh, we we got about 20 minutes left, and we got a couple of more segments that we're going to do. 
I'll contact I'll talk with you. Later on. I'll, I'll I'll talk with you later on, and we'll set up a time for you to come in. You and I <clears throat> have had hundreds of hours of conversations, so I'm well aware of your knowledge base, brother. If nobody is, I am. Indeed, we go way back. So yeah, we we're going to get on to our. Uh, in the last 20 minutes, our, our final yeah, segment. Yeah, thanks, Jay Skills, Again. and I look forward to um, having further dialogue with you on New Abolitionist Radio. And yes, we are Word. uncensored, but you know we do do have families who tune in because we want everybody to hear this. So we're just trying to be cognizant of that. We're not trying to censor. So I, and I, and I, I do understand that, and I do apologize for my use of language, but you know, it's okay, it's brother. That I, I am like somewhat passionate about. Right, I understand. I, no if nobody, if nobody tells you, you wouldn't know. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. right. So it's all good. Um, but in the same got, breath, Max, you can. Uh, you, you got my number. Tribal has yes. my number. Yes. You give my number, uh, and you know you can give my number directly to Scotty if he wants to reach out me to re- reach out to me directly, even without a show, and he just wants to chit chat a little bit. I'm on board with that. Word, word. We so you do can that, definitely man. give Scotty my number. All right. No doubt. Well, we've got a lot of stories today that we didn't have the chance to cover. Scotty, is there anything you want to squeeze in before I go through a quick list of things people should check out? Yeah, just on the subject, something that Jay Skills brought up in terms of this being an international movement. Um, You know, prisoners in Uganda right now are forced to pick cotton. And it's turned into a billion dollar a year industry. And for years, we've been warning people on the continent of Africa that, you know, you're facing slavery just like we're facing slavery here in the United States because we do have a number of listeners, you know, international listeners, as this is an internet-based internet, internet based program. And so this, this beast has tentacles all over the world. Geo Group runs Australia's entire system. So, so you know, we definitely want to keep stressing that this is, beyond just a national problem although we live here and we want to take care of home first we do have allies outside of the continent yes certainly um anything else scotty uh no but i think otis wants to chime in real quick all right otis go ahead man i'd like to get his number because I used to work in Dallas selling, I mean, in Texas selling gold jewelry. In the late 80s, they busted a legal mill of lawyers working out of Duvalde County that was running that scheme, the overseas scheme. The girls weren't just doing it. They were being recruited by small county lawyers in Texas and swapping, you know, trading the money, sharing the money. I know exactly what he's talking about. Well, Otis, if you could, if you could afford Max your telephone number, then he can forward your number to Jay Skills and he can contact you. Yeah, I'll put you two together, no problem at all, man. Max? Yes, sir. Uh, I did want to give a shout out to Otis, as a matter of fact, because there's two uh, videos that I'm recommending that came from Otis uh, in his research. This is for our researchers, people that really want to go deeper than just the surface information. Uh, They are available on our planning page as well as on Facebook at, at New Abolitionist Radio. The first is titled Race and Public Policy in the 21st Century. Vesla Weaver, Karen Lacey, Naomi Marawaka, 2011. You should check that out. The other one is called John Brown's Body, Abolition Democracy Against Perpetual War. Robin D.G. Kelly, 
Morris Morrison Lecture in 2015. Check that out. And also, uh, shout out to Brother Hashima, who uh, was an incar- is an incarcerated individual that gave one of the best breakdowns of modern-day slavery as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment that I've heard in years. And it's titled, Hashima Speaks About the Amend the 13th Movement. By the way, he's the leader of the Amend the 13th Movement. So check that out if you really want to get into your research and, and deeper understanding is, is that of the brother? Aspects. Is that the brother who was one of the speakers at the... Um at the uh, rally, uh, the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights rally, because I'll never forget that, that chant, a man 13. And what yes. was what was the white brother's name that was standing out there in that hot sun with that sign who kept saying, a man 13, Andrew? <laughs> uh, Andrew? I, I don't remember the brother's name, but it he was, was a wonderful Andrew, fellow, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, that was a, he was Is a wonderful Is that the same fellow. person? Some of the other stories. Yeah, Scotty? Is that the same person? Yes, sir. That's the same person. Same okay. group to uh, amend the 13th movement. So Very it's a brilliant breakdown, and you should check it out if you have the time and opportunity. That particular video is only about 15, 16 minutes long. The other ones are lectures, and they're about an hour, hour and a half each. But again, you know, deeper research. Everybody needs to get into that sometimes. Some of the stories that I didn't get a chance to share today, I'll just give you the titles of them. Uh, the L.A. Times came out with this study that says white people should be more afraid of other whites than they are of people of color. And it breaks down how and why. If you really want to understand the truth, you should check that out. Yeah. Uh, then, Absolutely. Then another thing is an analysis that came out that shows that black defendants receive longer prison terms from Republican appointed judges. We got to remember that racism is real. Institutional racism is real. And I don't know if I'm quoting him correctly, but Bill Moore said uh Every Republican may not be racist, but Republicans are filled with racism. <laughs> so, right. you know, it, it, it's it's a situation that you should read out about. Um, keep in mind the election that's coming out uh, with the prosecutors and district attorneys that we talked about earlier. Then Oliver North has become the president of the freaking NRA. And he came out with some crap talking about how gun owners are as oppressed as blacks were under Jim Crow. <laughs> that sound like that sound like some huh? Candace Owens type bull crap there. <laughs> right? How you even bring that out your mouth, man? Are they lynching gun owners? Is that what they're doing right now? Mm-hmm. Wow. So anyway, that's one of the stories. Then there's a deputy suspect uh, that's been suspended for pay for his controversial social media post, and he's been suspended three times, going back to 2014 for public racism. Uh, you know, you just got to check out the story in our archives. Oh, there is one then, story, Max, that comes to my mind, um, and it speaks to, again, you know, the judges and what have you, but there was a Miami-Dade County judge who, in chambers, uh, referred to a black defendant as a muley. And this is, this is a, a Puerto Rican judge. You know, he mixed with something else, but, you know, they mentioned his Puerto Rican heritage. And he said, oh, you know, we used to use racial slurs in my youth against each other to justify him using the racist Italian, you know, slur muley against black defendants. He only got a 30-day suspension. I think he should right. be removed from the bench. I think you're right. If you show any sort of racism, you shouldn't be uh, on the bench at all. And Muli basically means eggplant, which refers to the dark color. So uh, another word they used in lieu of Muli was darkies, which meant basically the same thing. 
Um, so yeah, he should be out of there. So another story was, remember last week when we told you about the young 15-year-old kid who was tasered in his face while driving his four-wheeler? Well, apparently they just fired the trooper who tried to cover that all up uh, regarding the details of his death. Even with 25 hours of freaking video, he still tried to cover it up. And then Jeff Sessions wants police to use stop and frisk without reasonable suspicion. Come on, y'all. If that's not freaking fascism, what is? You can just stop people and go, give me your papers. And you know, with all the racism that's going on, institutional racism is going to be aimed at the same people it's always been aimed at. It's a damn shame. And then lastly, uh, I want to bring out uh, something that uh, Otis also turned me on to, and that is Antonio Moore recently did a breakdown. And in that breakdown about incarceration, he asked a question, and, and the answer was, there are more black men incarcerated in U.S. prisons than the total number of women who are incarcerated across the entire globe. That's pretty amazing, man, when you think about it like that. It and is, he breaks down the details, so check out that video. Especially, I'm hoping this brother finally wakes up to the 13th Amendment. Yeah, especially Scotty? in the context of this alleged war on women. And that is not to dismiss any of the oppression that women face in this country but at the same time as i recently pointed out let's not also not dismiss their complicity you know in this system so that was interesting you know to hear that uh, uh african-american men here in the united states are the total more than the number of women all over the planet incarcerated so wow any race all races combined the women just black men alone more of them are in prison in the united states than all women of any race creed or color across the entire globe who are incarcerated yeah that's an amazing thing and then uh, also check out the new video from john legend and rashid rashad robinson and it's titled in money bail now uh they break down the whole circumstances that we talked about here on the program earlier how it all connects uh, with the bail, cash bail system right there at the center of it all. It's it's worth watching. Well, that's about it, Scotty. Would you like to do our Rider of the well, 21st I was Century actually, Underground Railroad first and I then was, I'll finish was, it up with our, our abolitionists? I was actually going to ask you to go, go through them uh, both quickly um, so I can get prepared for the next program that's coming on air. I'm going to need to reset the conference line as uh, we're approaching that five-hour limit, and I have to reset it. So if you don't mind, Max, if you have them up, sure, if you can go through I'll them do that. Uh, I'll do that, no problem at all. This one uh, recently came out. It's from the Marshall Project, Project and it's uh, published uh, the 21st of this month. And Corey Williams, about to walk free in Louisiana, is the title. Corey Williams was ordered released from a Louisiana prison Monday after serving more than 20 years for a murder many believe he did not commit. His sudden freedom, he is expected to be released early Tuesday, is a super surprising twist in a legal drama that began with an ill-fated pizza delivery at a house in Shreveport in January of 98 and ended with the intellectually disabled man's case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Williams' lawyers reached a deal with Cattle Parish attorneys in the past week or so before the justices in Washington announced whether they would accept his case for review. After years of professing his innocence, he agreed to plead guilty. Let me just say this. He agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter and obstruction of justice charges, which allowed prosecutors a face-saving way to credit him with time served and then endorse his immediate release. 
The deal was approved Monday by Caddo Parish District Judge Catherine Dora, who then vacated Williams' first-degree murder conviction. Her involvement, too, is ironic. She had ruled against Williams once before in the case and perhaps is best known as the trial judge who denied compensation for Glenn Ford, the brother we mentioned earlier, uh, and another man who spent decades in Louisiana prison for a wrongful conviction before dying shortly after his release. I've been following Williams' cause since 2015. Last month, the Marshall Project chronicled anew the dubious case against him in our Case in Point series. It's a case that got worse over time. Williams, 16 years old when he, when he was arrested, was convicted of murdering a pizza delivery man and then sentenced to death even though all the physical evidence in the case pointed to a different and more compelling suspect. Police interrogated the teenager throughout a long night and gained a quote-unquote confession from him, even though they knew about his profound intellectual disabilities. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to Freedom, Corey Williams. Welcome to God Freedom, Mr. Brother. Williams. It's just a travesty, though, that they coerced like him. They- into that yes. agreement which will preclude him or disqualify him from reparations. Exactly, Scotty. Disqualifies him from reparations. Wow. Okay. Some of the things, man, but we got to tell these stories. All right. I'm going to pull up here our abolitionist in profile today, courtesy of Noriente, an abolitionist out of Florida, and one of my brothers and comrades, is Mumbet. She's also known as Elizabeth Freeman. Uh, the, in 18, 1781, as the American Revolution raged, a Massachusetts slave named Bet approached an abolitionist lawyer, Theodore Segwick, and asked him to help her sue for her freedom. Bet had endured mistreatment at the hands of her master's wife, including a blow from a hot kitchen shovel that left her with a burn on her arm, and she was determined to never return to their house again. To back up her case for emancipation, she cited a surprising source, Massachusetts newly inked constitution, which included a passage stating that all the state's residents were born free and equal. Segwick took the case and later argued in court that Massachusetts constitution nullified any previous laws supporting slavery. In a landmark decision, the jury agreed and awarded Bet her freedom as well as 30 shillings in damages. It was one of the first times that a enslaved person successfully won emancipation in court. And along with another case involving a man named Quack Walker, it helped set a precedence, a precedent that saw Massachusetts abolish slavery in 1783. Having struck a major blow for the abolitionist cause, Bet went on to work as a paid domestic servant in Segwick's home. She also adopted a name that reflected her new status as a free citizen, Elizabeth Freeman. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Elizabeth Freeman. Salute, most definitely, man. man. Got to give a shout that out name, to the ancestors. Yes, and, and that name, Scotty, it means a lot to me because I have ancestors, family and cousins right now whose last name are free and Freeman, and we know why their last names are Free and Freeman, because they didn't own the one that they were given. So they took the next best thing to represent what it was they were. And to this day, my family is still called Free as their legal last name, or Freemans too. All right, Scotty, that is just about it. We've only got a few minutes left. Any uh, final comments? 
Um, yes, Max, um, I want to thank our special guest tonight, Mr. Christopher Scott, who is a inspiration and just a testament to the power of the human spirit and just grateful for the work that he is doing right now because, again, he could just be sitting back enjoying his grandkids, you know, and catching up with the time that he lost with his own children. But for whatever reason, his conscience wouldn't allow him to do that. While in addition to enjoying his grandkids, he is also diligently working to free others who have been wrongfully convicted. And, you know, I had never talked to him before. And it's always great to get confirmation from others that we are dealing with slavery. We're not dealing with mass incarceration. We're not dealing with over incarceration. We're, we're not dealing with, we're dealing with a continuation of slavery. Frederick Douglass tried to warn people that a snake can shed its skin, but it's still the same old snake. And the linchpin to this legalized slavery and human trafficking is the 13th Amendment. And we have to keep the pressure on and calling for a constitutional amendment to that amendment and removal of the exception clause. Thank you to all the callers and all the people who make this broadcast possible. I uh, echo all of your sentiments, Scotty. Thank you to everybody who participated today to make this program possible. Um, I want you to be sure to come in on the 30th where our guest will be, uh, our guest will be Sharon Smith. Sharon Smith uh, and I have a long, rich history. We have made history together. She's a Quaker, a Black Lives Matter uh, leader in the uh, Asheville, North Carolina area, and also a uh, human rights advocate and a tribal uh, advocate as well. And we're just going to be, you know, just bring her in to talk about whatever she wants to talk about because she is a wealth of information, much like uh, Brother Jay. So in any case, make sure you tune in next week on the 30th where Sharon Smith will be our guest. Uh, here's my final comments. Some people have a full grasp of an idea. Those who do are often lifted up by the people. But here's the dilemma. These are men and women with a message. Following the message comes first. The person second. That is why it's said that you can kill a man, but you can't kill an idea whose time has come. Some people go off message for good, sold out, gave up, or switched sides. Don't follow them and lose your way. Follow the idea and stay on point. I've seen too many people come and go. I've seen people write books and then defend their veracity even though they know they were wrong years later for no other reason than their livelihoods depend on that bookseller. Truth be damned. I heard a phrase once. It said, never trust a man or woman with no message. It's about the message. If you don't have one, then you ain't talking about nothing. And if you do have one, you would probably be saying what I say. Abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. 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 Rise up, 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 rise up. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you 
yards, our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise 